Welcome. You're listening to the Vital and Thriving Podcast for Congregations Building Beloved Community. I'm Scott Sherman. And I'm Claire Dietrich Rana. We're two freewheeling, fun-loving, kind of ridiculous Episcopal priests. Speak for yourself. Serving the people of God and God's church here in the Bay Area. While supporting each other and you in noticing and responding to the movements of the Spirit in this unique moment we find ourselves in. So yes, welcome and welcome back to the second season of the Vital and Thriving podcast. We today resume our conversations with leaders from across the church who have wisdom and experience to talk to us about congregational flourishing and revitalization. And today we are thrilled. Thrilled. Absolutely thrilled to welcome the Reverend Molly Basquet. Now, Molly, you don't know this, but you were on our original, the original list of potential interviewees before people started telling us no. Uh, when we were developing this podcast <laughs> and Claire and I were, you know, finally honing our vision for it. So we are very, like I say, thrilled to have you here today. And I know this conversation is going to be, it's going to be a blessing and encouragement to anyone who listens. Well, so Molly thank you is, so much. Yeah. Well, yes. I'm, so I'm delighted me, to be here. Delighted to have you. Now, let me tell them who you are. Okay. <laughs> Molly is the senior minister at First Church Berkeley, UCC, United Church of Christ, um, just across the bay. Now, I'm saying that as I'm, my social situation is I am recording from San Francisco. So depending on where you are as a listener, uh, maybe she's where you are and I'm just across the bay or up the bay. Anyway, <laughs> she is the author of six books that explore everything from uh, church renewal, faithful parenting, spiritual transformation, uh, even the grief of children. Uh, before coming to the Bay Area, though, she led First Church Somerville, uh, in which she describes, and I love this description, as a radically renewing UCC that boasts its own drag queen in residence in Berkeley's doppelganger, Somerville, Massachusetts. Who knew that she would actually <laughs> wind up in Berkeley? And she describes herself as someone who, I love this, takes the Bible seriously, but herself, not so much. So I think we can agree, Claire, that would probably classify as a spiritual gift. <laughs> so welcome, Molly. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. It's absolutely thrilling to be here. And um, I met Claire in real life just a few weeks ago. Scott, it's yep. great to meet a new friend and neighbor in you. Same here. Same here. So, Molly, I've read that uh, the ministry bug bit you at Progressive Christian Church Camp when you were a nerdy teenager, which sounds just like something that God would do. Um, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your faith journey. Did you grow up going to church? And when and how did you discern a call to ordained ministry? Absolutely. Um, in some ways, it's a really boring, very straightforward story, especially when you consider how, you know, all the twists and turns that many of us have in our faith life. Um, lots of metaphors of God chasing us, lots of sort of being run out of unsafe spaces, um, my story, um, my folks divorced when I when they were when I was really young. My mom moved me and my sister away from Boston to live in to live with her parents in Hartford, Connecticut. And even though my mom had a lot of her own struggles, was really great at resourcing her kids um, and found us a really lovely little UCC that took us in and took care of us in the most um, earnest, but not you know not not infantilizing ways, like they, not shaming ways. You know, we were yeah. sort of one of the poor families in the church and they were always there with just what we needed, but without kind of othering us. Um, from Mr. and Mrs. Tuttle, who gave me and my sister a ride to, to, um, to church every week. 
um, to our my youth pastor and my Mrs. Janie, my Sunday school teacher, who just were the embodiment of Christ's love for for all of us, um, especially particularly for the most vulnerable. And they sent me to church camp on scholarship. I didn't want to go, but my mom said she needed a break, so that was another nudge from God. And as you said, like. My faith had been sort of inherited. You know, I felt like the the loving adults in my life carried my faith for me. And that was really mm-hmm. where I really started to claim it for myself at the age of 13. You know, I was a big nerd in my school. Um, being a nerd was not cool then the way it is now. I feel like <laughs> I, I missed my, my moment. Um, but... Silver Lake Conference Center is where I experienced the unconditional love of Jesus Christ mediated through middle school kids, um, Mm. some of whom I'm still dear friends with to this day, you know, 40 years later. Um, And I knew I wanted that for the rest of my life. You know, that the call didn't become explicit for another 10 years or so, nine years. Um, I ended up working on staff at camp. I was there the summer after I graduated from college, um, I was actually on track. I thought I wanted to be a journalist and a writer because I loved to tell other people's stories. I was very curious. I was very nosy, which I think are also great qualities for being a minister. Um, Mm -hmm. And then through a weird twist, I ended up taking the foreign service exam and got, um, got sort of went all the way through the process to um, be a a foreign service um, to work for the U S state department overseas, which was very, very, you know, thrilling to my, my Enneagram three, like I'd arrived here. I'm 22 years old and I'm going to be a life a lifelong diplomat, or it could take me, you know, wonderful places. Um, but on a soul level felt so wrong and disorienting mm. and dreadful. Like I had, I had a lot of dread that summer at church camp, um, and mm-hmm. I knew the moment I saw this white guy in a seersucker suit striding across the lawn, like he was so out of place. He showed what they do is when you're in the process to um, to work for in the foreign service, they do a security clearance and they just show up in places. Um, and mm-hmm. I had no idea that he really knew where I was that summer. And he interviewed all kinds of people who'd known me since I was 13 years old. And Mm. and that was the God moment. That was the sort of like paradoxical, stomach flipping, Mm. table turning moment for me. I was like, nope, bye. Uh, I got it. I got it. I got to work for God for a living and um, had some conversations with ministers who I was hanging out with that summer who told me that seminary, like just, just really normalized what life as a minister would be like for me. Um, Mm. that I wouldn't have to sort of cut off these parts of myself, um, or Mm. be, you know, a holy person, like be anything less than fully human. So, um, I went to seminary right from there. I moved to New Haven and waited tables for a semester, sort of let the sense of call deepen and, and made sure it endured and, um, never looked back. So quick shout out for YDS because Molly and I both went there. <laughs> um, uh, okay. Let me step in. Let me step in here. Uh-oh, we're going to have a rumble. Let me break this up. Well, well, okay. So I was down the road at Princeton Seminary, and I'm just going to say mm-hmm. say this heard of funny it. little thing. Yeah, I heard of it. It's, okay. it's, it's, a, it was, it's a safety school. Um, <laughs> but the thing, you know, so I was Presbyterian before becoming Episcopalian. And I had some UCC pals, and I remember, you know, we would we would rib each other, you know. And one of the one of the pokes at the UCC was we we would say, you know, UCC Unitarians considering Christ. Oh yeah, <laughs> I just heard, heard this one. from Molly from the first time when oh, I met her two weeks okay. ago. Yes, I'd yes. never heard and, it before. <laughs> and, and, and all love and respect to Unitarians, we have a Unitarian listers, but but. What I, you know, I flash back to that. I didn't know you were going to bring in all this Yale nonsense. And um, <laughs> um, you can edit it out. I, post. Th- it's yeah, okay. Yeah. But I flash back to it because I thought, I thought, okay, I, I think this, um, I think this UCC pastor's pretty much into Jesus <laughs> from everything I can tell oh, in this yeah. story. Yeah. Uh, it's I pretty mean, clear. It, it, I think it was implicit. Like, I will say this. I love my tradition. Um, I feel very grateful to be UCC, be, partly because I did not have a 
particularly traumatizing experience of religion growing up. I did not have a lot to like negotiate or, or heal from or re-navigate. But, you know, as as a cradle UCCer, I can also like complain about it, having very long experience with it. And and we, you know, despite our best efforts, I feel like we don't do formation, particularly formation in, in what I would call the the radical way of Jesus and mm. and sort of the and how the Bible supports our understanding of Jesus. Um as many as other traditions do. And, you know, there's lots of folks in my church who've been listening to sermons for 50 years and still feel like they don't know the Bible and don't feel Mm -hmm. equipped to really talk explicitly about their faith. They're very shy to share publicly and testimony to share it with their children and teach their children as their children's primary teachers. And I'm like, but 50, 50 years. Come on, like where yeah. where where is it breaking down here? I'm just going to interject here that this is not uh, just a UCC phenomenon. Mm, I know, I <laughs> by, know. by mm, any yeah. stretch, but you know that's that's one one of the reasons why we are uh, why our diocese is going deep with this vital and thriving work, and a lot mm-hmm. of it is to get restored. You know, getting restored yeah. by getting restoried. You know, mm, getting getting reshaped yeah. by. Uh, this story so that we can, you know, look and act more like Jesus. Um, and stories, stories are really what teach, right? Like yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to remember a systematic theology, but it's easy to remember a story with a beginning a middle and an end, with good mm-hmm. character development and a crisis and a, a hero's journey, you know, that teaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the we a triplex is pretty fascinating. I mean, I mean, there's so many great, <laughs> there are a lot of great systematic theology. <laughs> Okay, we're, just gonna uh, sneak it in. Let's talk about your book, <laughs> Real it. Good Church, uh, which you know it tells about the, the story of your time at First Church Somerville. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just tell us how, how did you find your way to that congregation? Uh, what was it like when you first got there? Sure. Um, so i I am a city kid. I, you know, from very early in seminary, thought I would go into urban ministry. God had other plans. I, I spent a year right after seminary um, at an orphanage in Colima, Mexico, which was a really grounding experience of voluntary service, uh, really, really formed and shaped me. And then when I went back to Boston, I um, was actually working at a temp at the Archdiocese of Boston during the clergy sexual abuse scandal. So that was a whole thing. Mm-hmm. While I awaited ordination in the UCC, you need to get a call to get ordained. And at the time, um, there weren't any really compelling churches open that were interested in me as a newbie. Um, so I ended up as a full-time associate at a larger suburban church north of Boston. And I remember feeling really disappointed, like, oh, like, I don't, I don't think I know how to love rich people, you know? Mm-hmm. And I talked to some really wonderful um, nuns and priests who I was working with at the time in a um, Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, a, a multi-faith um, community action agency, at volunteer organization. And one of the priests said, go where they can pay you, go where everything's not on fire all the time, um, go and learn how to love rich people because Jesus loved them too, and let that be your first call, and then go do urban ministry. And he was prophetic, like that is mm-hmm. sort of how it worked out. So I was at... Um, Second Congregational in Beverly, Mass. For a little over five years, learned a lot. Went through a painful conflict there. Became a mother there. Grew up in many ways. Um, and then this little church came open in Somerville, Massachusetts, just down the road, my old stomping grounds. And coincidentally, a very dear friend of mine was their interim, um, which didn't actually give her influence, um, except for you know she might have been able to slip slip in a word um, here and there, but she was also a Reiki master and she was doing Reiki on me. And I remember her praying to God, you know, God, please give Molly this opportunity um, if it's your will. And then she said, I don't know why it wouldn't be your will. <laughs> she she loved telling God what to do. And they called me. Um, and my favorite story from that switch, um, that, that transition, that movement was... Um, partly because I think I was young and it was my first call and I was still developing my sense of pastoral authority and boundaries and how do I be fully myself as a minister in this context, this cultural context, which doesn't really fit me. You know, I noticed I noticed all my clothes were beige, gray and black, for example, and that's really not me. 
And one time I had, I, I had sandals and my blue, bright blue toenails were showing. And one of the elders in my first congregation sort of chastised me. And that's when I knew I was like, I can't stay. Like, I love these people. I've learned a lot, but I cannot stay. And just a few months later, I was interviewing with Somerville. We were walking back from great Mexican food to the, to the church for my interview. And one of the young leaders of the church said, nice toenails. Oh, and it was that simple, you know, it was like (laughs) what I can reveal, how I'm affirmed and even embraced for, you know, these little, little parts of myself that I let show that I let be revealed or be naked, so to speak. Um, Mm. So that was the shift to Somerville and it was 12 years of joy with them. So your your book recounts a lot of your work together and how that congregation changed quite dramatically under your leadership. I, I we'll get into a lot of the detail here, but I wonder if you could just talk about where you started and how you how you knew to kind of focus where you focused um, and what you began to notice was happening that made you think we're moving in the right direction. Sure. Um, I'll be honest, a lot of it was instinct. You know, people always say like, what's your plan or what's God's plan? And I don't think God has a plan. And I certainly don't. You know, I I think we have dreams and we sort of test out those dreams and look for this, look for the spaces that God has opened, look for the opportunities, look for those moments of syzygy or, you know, I like to describe God as lore. You know, I know that's not new. It's it's from process theology, but sort of getting quiet and seeing where God is drawing us, see where that sort of magnet is, um, mm-hmm. is, is pulling us. Something happened. So Virtue Central was open and affirming, which is UCC speak for queer affirming. When I got there, um, they'd mm-hmm. had a very charismatic pastor before me who led them through that process. Um, it had attracted some young people to the church. Somerville is, is both kind of old school, blue collar, working class community and very young, creative, dynamic, very eclectic community. And our church reflected that. We actually had a lot of older people who, who some of whose grandparents had founded the church um, and they were lovely, but getting very tired of doing the jobs. Mm-hmm. And then we had young people who were eager and ready and who really understood that it depended on them to, to kind of carry their church forward, that no one, you know, we'd almost no one in the middle, almost no one. When I arrived, I was 31, almost no one, I would say age 40 to 70, um, those sort of like mm-hmm. anchor people. And I think that paradoxically worked in our favor because it meant that the younger people had to take responsibility. So I'd been there probably five months when the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts made equal marriage, the law of the land in Massachusetts. It was one of the first states, if not the first, I can't remember, Connecticut might've been before us. Um, But that was a golden opportunity for us to demonstrate our affirmation and embrace of queer marriage um, publicly. And so I suggested at a church council meeting that we hang out a church flag. And I sort of, I don't know if it's a, a virtue or a vice, but I have a habit of just like, just making, you know, making bold claims out loud or crazy ideas, you know, without regard for the feelings in the room. I don't sort of tiptoe up on big ideas. And the room was silent. And the young people looked at the older people and the older people looked at their laps. And what I hadn't realized was that there was a sort of tacit, maybe even unconscious agreement that, okay, we're ONA, but let's not be loud about it. I mean, this is also kind of Boston culture too, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, what, what, what did I say? And the older people said, well, um, we, we don't know if we want to, you know, sort of declare ourselves to be a gay church to the exclusion of other things. And I was like, well, let's unpack this. What, what would it mean to be a gay church? That actually sounds fun to me. Um, Mm -hmm. I I wasn't that blase with them. Um, Mm -hmm. but we, we had a, a gentle, careful conversation and, um, that was actually a couple of weeks before the Supreme court made their decision. Supreme Court made their decision. Um, I went down to City Hall, handed out my business card as queer couples were coming in to get married at City Hall. Um, Some of our folks back at church had a table where they handed out um, sparkling cider and bubbles, like wedding favor bubbles, and hung up a pride flag in front of of their table. And then the Mm -hmm. next month, went back to church council and with 
all do eagerness said, we met so many people gay and straight who were so excited there's a church doing something like this. They never in a million years thought a church would embrace this. So that gave the older folks courage to say, yes, hang up the pride flag for the for pride month for June, and then we'll swap out other flags. And eventually we just forgot, I'm putting that in air quotes, to, to take the pride flag down. So that that's an example of just claiming our values out loud in public, um, of living them, of iterating, you know, with greater boldness, our deepest commitments and our, our joy and our, you know, the church should be playful, fun, progressive in the sense that, that it's always trying new things, that it's always being open to what the spirit is doing next and call and how it's calling us to become next. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're such a great storyteller in this book. And I wonder if you could, uh, Claire and I were both thinking you, you should tell the listeners about uh, Doomsday Pollyanna. Oh, sure. Uh, that's a little name I came up for, with for myself because I am a native optimist. You know, at least part of that is because I'm a white woman in America. You know, it's certainly a lot easier to be an optimist when you're white in America. But it, I do also think it's part of my God-given temperament that no matter what is going on, uh, you know, I'll grieve with everyone else. I'll rage. I'll stop my feet. But I can usually before too long see the bright side or not even the bright side to see what's next. I can like see over the horizon a little bit. Um, But that's not to deny that truly terrible things are always happening. So how do you live in the midst of that? Like, how do you hold both ends of that paradox together? How do you how do you acknowledge what's hard and death dealing without submitting to despair permanently? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. mental health issues yeah. aside, because treatment resistant, treatment resistant depression is a real thing. And I have actually um, rarely suffered from depression in my life, but enough to know like, wow, this is real. And you can't like think or walk or will yourself out of it. But mm-hmm. I feel very blessed that, um, that is my temperament, the doomsday Pollyanna. Mm. So we've talked a lot with the leadership in the Vital and Thriving Pilot Cohort, which I'm a part of as a congregational leader, um, about the importance of, of perspective and kind of noticing and naming the resources that are available to our congregations, even when they're hidden from us in some way. So as an example, someone told this story at one of our first gatherings Um about a pastor of a small parish who lamented to his mentor, all we've got is 10 people in a crummy building. And um, his mentor responded, like, do you know what some church planters would give for 10 people in a crummy building? (laughs) Like this total shift. So I wonder if you could talk about how it is that as lay and ordained leaders of congregations, we we always begin where we are and maybe yeah. also a little about the metrics or the ways you think about health um, or success for churches that are uh, in one way or another coming back to life. Sure. So I was blessed to have some really good early mentors in church renewal, um, some of whom have become good friends, um, chief among them, Michael Piazza, who runs Agile Consulting. I've learned a lot from him over the years. I've also read, I read a lot and I'm married to an efficiency expert who works in high, has worked in higher ed and also technology. And so I read things he gives me. I've read, uh, I've read Ron Heifetz, Clay, Clay, Clay Christensen, John Cotters, um, eight steps for change management, um, mm-hmm. which I was doing to some degree intuitively, but just making it really explicit, helped me to bring leaders on board um, for sort of healthy leadership and, and acculturating um, important changes in our, in our churches, which are notoriously resistant to change. What else? Richard Rohr, you know, he's a theologian, but he's all about transformation. He's all about, you know, soul over ego, a really influential book for me was his Falling Upwards, Spirituality mm-hmm. for the Two Halves of Life. Oh. And I taught, I, so good, I, I'm, right? I'm well into the second half of life. And that, yes. I wish he had written that book about 30 years uh, earlier. Well, it's never too late. So, I mean, what yeah. he talks yeah. about is, you know, the second sort of second act, which doesn't necessarily happen, you know, when you turn 40 or 50, it can happen earlier if you have, uh, you know, if you face your mortality and that really makes you grow old. And some people, he said, a lot of people, frankly, never 
never engage that second task. They never become mm-hmm. what he calls true elders. And so I try to tempt the people who are in the second half of life in my churches to become true elders by describing them. You know, I, I forget the exact language, but he says something like, people know a true elder because they instinctively feel safe with them. Young pe- uh, children, children, something and something instinctively feel safe with them because they know they, they are okay. They've gotten over themselves. They've gotten over their egos. They're hard to, it's hard for them to get riled up. And, you know, if you sit, if you describe the true elder, like all of us can think immediately of one or two people like, Oh, that's Dibby. You know, it was Dibby in, in my church in Somerville, or it was uh, Dick Huber who, who was married to the woman whose grandparents had founded the church. He was a retired cop. He was like a Boston guy, you know, he was a real guy. Um, and he, when there was some, a little bit of bickering at one point over changes in church, he, he stood up in a congregational meeting and said very explicitly to all of his age peers in their eighties at this point, we had our turn. Now it's their turn. And we got to let, we have to let them do it their way. You know, like it was just, he just said it. Like, and it was much more effective for him saying it. May, may his may his tribe increase. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, go ahead. No, it's so interesting Skyrim to hear. Uh, we 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 channel a lot of Ron Heifetz around here, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it's actually one of the co- one of the core insights from Heifetz uh, that shapes vital and thriving, and particularly the partnership for the missional church that we're doing with this cohort, is the idea that you need a holding environment. Uh, mm. over time to sort of discern. And, you know, mm. our process really is, it's essentially three years where the first year um, in this holding environment of a cohort, you know, congregations learning from one another. But within the congregation, the first year, they're really doing a lot of listening, you know, contemplative engagement, listening. Mm-hmm. In the second year, we move more into experimenting based on mm. what what we're hearing and then really moving more into focus as things get clearer. Um, mm-hmm. And it's funny as I as I read your book, I thought you know, uh, we, you know, you, you seem to be kind of you, you know, a lot of people seem to have figured out some of this kind of I guess community organizing uh, pattern of of leadership. Could you just tell us a little bit about how you learned to bring a parish back to life? Uh, yeah. What, you know, what prepared you for it? Uh, Gosh, what prepared me for it? I think a lot of it was instinctive, but, you know, part of it is that I, I really love people and I love hearing their stories. And so that helps me. I, I'm naturally a very impatient person. So hearing you, Scott, say, like, listen for a year, I'm like, listen for a whole year. That's too long. The church is going to die if we wait that long. You know, I'm a very impatient person. But I, again, I really do love to hear people's stories. So kind of listening listening closely, that ministry of presence alongside a ministry of, you know, innovation or action, but inviting people into the work. You know, one thing my spiritual director and I talk about a lot is as the shepherd, not getting too far out in front so far that Mm -hmm. people can't hear the sound of your voice any longer. How do you, and then along with that, like you, you need to lead and leading means not being meek or fearful of um, fearful of other people's fear and anxiety and what that might do, um, whether it's, you know, bully, fire you, um, try to take over the church, leave in a huff and take their, you know, $50,000 a year pledge, whatever it is. Um, but it also means how do you, how, how do you make sure it's not your vision? And this is something as an Enneagram yep. 3 I've yep. also struggled yep. with. How do you um, really let it arise from the midst of your people? and let sort of the healthiest, most dynamic people articulate it and articulate it broadly so that it infects others and quells their anxiety, brings them on board. Um, so that it really, I mean, congregational polity is the spirit and the power is in the people. It's not in the pastor. Like I have very little authority of person in my congregation. So how do you, how do you foster that arising? Well, we, we Episcopalians are, we're trying to we're we're trying to. You're trying to be more UCC. I, I'm not going to go that far. Okay. <laughs> but I I think we are trying to be more. You know, you could almost say we're trying to be more Pentecostal in the sense of yeah. You know, trusting. Be, sure. You know, trusting mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit that she is mm. actually 
you know, that God's really here and mm-hmm. at work. And that one of the ways you discern what the Spirit is doing how, to join it yeah. is to actually talk to the people of God. Yeah. And talk and, to your neighbors. Talk to your neighbors. And you know, talk. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. And also because, you know, UCC folk are very wordy to feel right? Because like part of being Uh, Pentecostal mm -hmm. is trusting the heart as much as the head, is trusting emotion, which my people do not do easily. And um, Claire or maybe Scott Mm -hmm. asked about sort of metrics, like how do you know when it's going well? I mean, numbers are great. It's great when you can balance the budget. It's great when new people are coming and and excited and discovering you and and engaging and becoming leaders. But for me, it comes down to um, three things, laughter, tears, and human transformation. You know, if we are laughing and crying in church, I call the tears, Holy Spirit tears. It's like, I didn't mean to cry, but here they are. It's just coming. You know, something got to Mm. me, something fundamental, something like in the marrow. Um, There's a spirit between us. I feel, you know, the ego Mm. boundaries are falling away. I feel connected to these people, even if I don't know them that well. Um, And then the transformation, like, is, is your life changed? Are you learning? Are you growing? Are you integrating what you're learning in a way that is impact that heals your own wounds, that allows you to put your wounds to the service of others, that gives you energy to move out into the world, heal, transform, heal and transform the world, you know, tikkun olam. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me is, that's a vital church, you know. And um, mm-hmm. just one little story I'll tell, I tell it in my new book um, about a church I was consulting with and they specifically wanted me to talk about Somerville's practice of testimony, which I should say predated me. You know, I helped them refine it, but it was core to who they were already. And went to this church, which was, you know, probably dying, who knows. Um, but, you know, the numbers were down and tried to get them to be vulnerable, open up and tell their stories. And you got to buy the book if you want to hear the whole story. But <laughs> point being, went around the room the first time people were totally clammed up. They just weren't there. They weren't ready. And then someone in the group, both the activities we did and and a person who, who had invited me gave their testimony, which inspired, she had planned and prepared it, but that inspired a guy who on the first go round, like didn't say a word, just said pass to tell a story that was so, so vulnerable, so profound. He wept through it. And people held him with such grace. Uh, they didn't minimize. They didn't rush. They didn't, you know, for their because their own discomfort at big feelings. They didn't try to like com- comfort him, but just let him sit with his feelings. And I actually don't know what's happened to that parish. It's been about six years, but that church will never die because because of the level at which they were able to disclose, because of what passed between them that day. You know, whether it's dissolved, maybe they've dissolved, but it's, it has not died. I know that for sure, for certain. Hmm. So you describe your newest book, which you also just mentioned, How to Begin When Your World is Ending, which I did pre-order just the other day, um, as part cancer memoir, part resurrection and redemption stories from the trenches of parish ministry, and part disaster theology for everyone. Could you talk a little more about this disaster theology of which you speak? Because I feel like we could all use some of that these days. Absolutely. So this is um, this is a set of ideas that you know I've sort of tested as a parish minister over the last twenty five years, watching people th- go through some very hard things and not be able to make sense of it, but ultimately be able to make meaning from it, um, to experience transformation and even resurrection um, from their own ashes. Um, A phrase I use a lot is God didn't send the disaster, but God will use it. So, you know, we don't believe in a God who indiscriminately, you know, gives four-year-olds leukemia that they never survive or kills, you know, three quarters of a million people in a tsunami. Like, we just don't believe in that God. You know, I, I I say each week in church and my people sometimes pick a bone with me, God is good all the time, you know, as a phrase we hear in churches. How how do we square that with the way the world is? So God doesn't send the disaster, cancer and natural disasters and lots of lots of hard things just happen. Um, and God doesn't pick and choose who gets to live and die. But within every hard thing that happens, there's an opportunity, right, for our own growth 
for our own sense of, of, for a willingness to face our own vulnerability and ask for help and claim our interdependence to partner with God, to learn what we need to learn and grow in the ways we need to grow, to call in all the, all the supports available to us. The, the key thing is that we can't decide other people's disasters are from God or like how, what they mean. We each mm-hmm. have to decide for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I love that distinction between needing something to make sense and, and being able to make meaning. I think yeah. that's really, really helpful. Well, because if something has to make sense, it can't have any bits that don't fit, right? And mm-hmm. so you're necessarily sort of blinding yourself to the the messy fullness of what's happening. But you can make meaning and it, it can still be a mess, right? Mm. That's the difference. Yeah. You know, I, I think some of uh, some of the experience of disaster for many folks in our congregations, and I, I know especially just talking to pastors, is just the the decline in their congregations and and just all the anxiety and fear over that decline and, you know, what, what it means. Um, and I think if you, you know, if you connect that to just all the change uh, that COVID has brought, mm-hmm. I, I'm just wondering where you're seeing signs of hope mm-hmm. <laughs> in the midst of, you know, this, this, this kind of t- season of this, what just seems like a kind of a, you know, a lot of dismantling. Yeah. Uh, what gives you hope? Where where are you uh, as a leader? Uh, where are you finding yourself focusing uh, in yeah. this in this moment? It's a really good question, and I don't I don't have a lot of answers yet. I feel like we're still in the middle of the mystery, and and I like mm-hmm. lots of other pastors, am trying lots of things, not really certain what's going to work. Um, you, you had a great when we were chatting earlier. You talked about prime prying people back <laughs> prying people I have stood in the pulp and I said I need your butts in the pews like I am missing your energy you know in if person you're, if you're able to come person, back in person come yeah back, if you're immunocompromised please. or you live in Akron you know both of which we have in our church that's mm-hmm. fine you get a pass if there's no <sighs> physical reason why you can't be here it's just that you enjoy folding your laundry while watching church and multitasking I'm sorry we're giving you our energy, but we need your energy in here too. It's too hard to do this thing without you in the mm. room. 85 yeah. people in a sanctuary meant for 600 does not feel good. I will say that. I realize I can't mm. say that every week. You know, no one wants to like, no one wants that energy from their pastor, but I have explicitly said it in a couple different ways, a couple different times. So I don't know if it's me asking, but my people are coming back finally. Um, we were running back in October, about half our pre-pandemic worship, which I think is fairly typical. You know, I've been in a lot of churches and talked to a lot of friends. Now we're back up to like two thirds. We're doing a lot of kinds of fun that you can only have in person, like not to leave out the people who are online only and have to be, but um, we're feeding people really good food. We, you know, we're doing lots of, this is not innovative. Lots of churches just bouncy house, lawn games. For my book launch in a few weeks, we're having a disco dance party. Everyone's welcome. It's open to the public with DJ and Mm -hmm. disco lights. You know, what's fun? Like we need to have fun. I noticed, I noticed like mid to late pandemic. I mean, we're still late pandemic, but once we had the vaccine, we thought people would come back to church. Some of them did. So grateful for them. There were sort of two other zeitgeist. One was like the the COVID cautious, can't do anything. Another was sort of this rumspring a moment where people are like, I'm going to have all the fun because who knows I may die tomorrow. And then this like weird hybrid where people were like being cautious and also doing, having all the fun, but neither of those things included coming to church in person. I was like, I was mad. <laughs> I was upset. I'm like, I see you on Facebook eating dinner at a restaurant and going to concerts and then saying like, oh, I feel too cautious to go to church where we're all masked except for people have tested that day. So that doesn't hold water with me. I think, but I do see a shift happening now. It feel it was a it was very hard this past spring and summer to get people to RSVP or volunteer for anything. I feel like, you know, church is a mm. lot of work, especially mm. institutional church makes a lot of jobs. It makes a lot of 
busy work. And one thing, one gift of the pandemic, I think, is it really stripped things down. I mean, not for pastors who ha- who got like nine extra jobs, but it really simplified things. So that coming back, we have an opportunity to discern, like, do we bring back this? Do we bring back that? Um, we don't have a printed order of worship anymore. We have like 15 large print for people with um, who are visually impaired um, and who can't see our screens. We don't have Sunday school or nursery anymore. We have a whole bunch of new families. I don't know where they came from. I hope they stay. They're so much fun. Mm. They don't seem put out that there's no paid childcare or volunteer childcare. Maybe mm. it'll come back. Like maybe God will provide for that. Like we, we tried to hire someone and we couldn't um, and no one wants to volunteer. So all the kids are just in a big, we call it the amen corner at the back with like books and toys and, and it's working for now. If it stops working, we'll try something else. We'll keep iterating. We're trying to make worship more explicitly welcoming of them, give them jobs to do. And while being still, you know, without like making, dumbing it down for adults. Um, And I think that's actually making worship better. We've been talking to Wendy Claire Berry about the church post Sunday school just wrote a great new book about that Episcopal priest up in Mm -hmm. Seattle. Um, Mm -hmm. She Mm -hmm. said, if it's not about like Sunday school's over, it's toast, it's done. It didn't really work except it was, Mm -hmm. you know, good childcare for parents who needed some peace during the worship hour. Um, Now it's all about intergenerational and relationships. If it's not about relationships, don't do it. And I think that, I think that's, what's really mostly driving whatever post or late pandemic success, I'm putting that in air quotes too, uh, let's say thriving instead, um, people are realizing what was missing. People are realizing what really matters, what really supports Mm -hmm. their mental health and emotional wellness. And one of those things is community, particularly intergenerational community, particularly in a metro region like ours, where people are living far from their parents and their siblings and their cousins. And Church gives them bonus grandparents, um, those true elders, um, people of different socioeconomic walks of life. You know, it's just this interesting, we call it our Motley Pew mix of people. They're attracted mm-hmm. to that. So how do we, we, we had our all church retreat. We had 67 people come. Those are pre-pandemic numbers because people are craving those relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So this is outside of the scope of what we often talk about on Vital and Thriving, but it's stewardship season for most or maybe even all Episcopal congregations across the Bay Area. Um, you've reflected beautifully in many different forums and in your writing and other ways about how we think about our financial resources. And I just wonder how you're thinking about that at this point. And is there anything you're doing differently in light of what we just talked about in terms of being in a different context? Sure. Well, two things we're doing last night and tonight, we're having our first ever First Church Telethon. Um, and it, again, it's about connection. It, it's marginally about money, but um, we're, we're, we have about 25 of us are calling the entire congregation over two nights. We have chocolate and pizza and homemade Ethiopian food and like mm. little prayer, little, you know, scrum to get us excited, get over our anxiety about cold calling people. And we're calling people to say, Hey, have you made a commitment to a financial commitment to your church? About 80% of us have, and we're going for 100%. If you have, thank you. But more importantly, I'm calling you just to connect. How have you been? How's life been for you? Maybe we know each other a little bit. Maybe we're great friends. Maybe we've never met, but we're trying to make our church a little smaller and more intimate. Hey, do you know Mm -hmm. about the fun stuff coming up at church? You know, calling people in. And I was shocked. I was shocked how many people said yes to making phone calls. Mm -hmm. Our youngest person was 13. Our oldest was 82. They had a blast. We're going to do it again tonight. And Mm -hmm. it just, it feels good and different and like really counterculture for for us. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing we're doing is we're having a capital campaign. We're doing it because we need to. One of our, our, our South Wing burned down six years ago. We're finally Mm -hmm. rebuilding it. Inflation has added 20% to our budget over the last year. So mm-hmm. we need to have a campaign to meet that delta. But it's a great opportunity to create new leadership, mm-hmm. you know, to call forth new leadership, to get people really excited about literally building something together. 
you know, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. will be a gift for our wider community and for our spiritual descendants. Um, mm-hmm. So as much work as a capital campaign is, it, it's a really galvanizing moment and says we have a future and we all have mm-hmm. a stake in that future. Here, here. Mm-hmm. Mm. Molly, thanks. Thanks for talking to us today. This has thanks for been having a, me. It's been a mm. blast. All right. Mm. All right. So we have now come to the lightning round. This is a tradition here on the Vital and Thriving podcast. That's right. Molly, you have you have 20 seconds. Okay. Or less to answer okay. these three questions. Do I get a big red button? We're fierce. We're fierce okay. with our okay. timer. We're terrible at this. Ready. Ready. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're terrible at this. I'm yes, terrible that's at it. short yes. answers. So we're yes, on the same but boat. Today's the day. Okay. So here we go. Uh, first, here we go. What yeah. is the best thing you ever ate at a church potluck? Mm. Go. Uh, I'm Orthodox. I love a good lemon square, but the edge is a little mm. burned. Mm. That see, I need a moment to like go. Mm. Mm. Yes. <laughs> no, we, we need the yes. rest of your twenty seconds. <laughs> mm. okay. What is your first memory of a worship service? Go. This is hard because we remember traumatizing things, and like I said, church was not traumatic for me. But the m- most memorable earliest was church camp, age thirteen walking up the hill from the Hubble Outdoor Chapel, arms around all my new best friends singing, they will know we are Christians by our love. Cheesy, but absolutely profound, tears, life-changing. Feel feel it as closely today as I did 40 years ago. Oh, I love it. Mm. We could all sing together, you know, if we wanted. But, we could. But, but we won't. Okay. Okay. Lastly, tell us the name of a church leader or theologian who isn't a white male that you're listening to, learning from right now that, you know, you think we should know more about. Go. Uh, so many, but I'll name just two or three. The Rabbi Daniel Ruttenberg, who is brilliant, lovely, funny, kind, has a new book called On Repentance and Repair, where she takes the five steps Maimonides laid out to um, heal when you have made a rupture and transform yourself and your relationships. Read it. Follow her on Twitter. She's amazing. I learned so much from her. He hasn't written like a big book, but he's one of my best besties and one of the most brilliant creatives I know is Marvin K. White. He's the Minister of Celebration at Glide. Follow him on Facebook. Mm. He's he's going to make you think, laugh, wonder. He's amazing. Um, Will Gaffney's Year W Lectionary, which our church is using this year to guide our preaching. Really wonderful stuff. Mm. And last, I can't get out of my head, Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing. She's an mm. Oakland artist and a professor at Stanford Young, um, biracial uh, atheist but so spiritual and brilliant. It's hmm. a good book. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today, Molly. We really enjoyed this time with you. So great to be with you. May all of our endeavors thrive in the way mm. of God. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Molly. So Claire, what did you learn from Molly today? I learned so much. I really enjoyed having her with us. You know, one thing that has stayed with me when she was talking about how she discerned her way into ministry and she described go, maybe going into the foreign service and um, and thinking that was like this very impressive option. Um, it reminded me when I was young and people would ask me what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be, I would always say I want to be an astronaut. And I was very into this. Like I took astronomy in high school and um, like actually looked at, I not seriously, but looked at the... Air Force Academy and like really thought this was something I was going to do. And eventually when I discerned a call to ministry, I remember looking back on that and thinking like both have this spirit of adventure to them and this like desire to explore deeply at the edge of what is known and and what is knowable. Um, And I, I just feel like she had this lovely energy and it reconnected with my own of this honesty about the challenges that are facing our world and the challenges that are facing our churches, while at the same time bringing this just real sense of curiosity and wonder and energy and hopefulness to our ministry together. 
So that just really, really landed and resonated for me today. Same here. Same for me. You know, I, uh, uh, this is going to sound funny because I'm going to start it off as a criticism a little bit, which is to say, you know, we were joking about Princeton Seminary and Yale mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, there were a few things that it, it really shows she's very shaped by process theology. And mm. I'm, I'm from a reformed background and I am very much a classical mm. Trinitarian and I, I still believe mm. in things like providence and mm. uh, God having a plan uh, and these mm. sorts of things. So, but, mm. so I say that only to say what came through to me was just in, in the way story shapes us, right? Was mm. her confidence in God. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm going to even, you know, it's a process term. So this is going to, this is me like really putting it out there clear. Uh, but <laughs> she used the metaphor of lure, L-U-R-E, mm. God as lure. Mm. Um, and I have to say, even though I'm going to frame that in a little more classical theology <laughs> framework, I think that's really quite beautiful and hopeful. However you, however you mm. show up in the story, uh, at the end of the day, it's do we as leaders, as, as you know, people who are part of congregations, do we believe that God is present and at work here to heal the world? Mm-hmm. And let's face it, none of yeah. us really understand how that works. We just mm-hmm. we just look at the risen Jesus and say, we're pretty sure that's what's that's where we're headed. And yeah. uh, and we you know entrust ourselves to God. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I just I found it really inspiring. When you named that, even when she said it in the interview, I was thinking of the maybe more medieval idea of like heliotropism. Like we we grow toward the sun. The sun is always shining and it is calling out of us like a plant that moves toward that source of life, um, calling us into our fullest selves, um, which I do think is part of what we're hoping to nourish and give some support to in Vital and Thriving. Listeners. Fishing and sunbathing. If that doesn't inspire you, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. What I don't else? know what will. There we go. <laughs> so, Claire, who who are our next inspiring guests going to be? Well, next time we will be speaking with the Reverends Phil Brichard and Alyssa Newton about their new book, Vital Christian Community: Twelve Characteristics of Healthy Congregations. Um, These two happen to also be dear friends of mine, so I am particularly looking forward to welcoming them to the podcast and to this episode. This is a not-to-miss one, for sure. It's going to be great. This episode of the Vital and Thriving podcast was hosted by Claire Dietrich Rana and Scott Sherman. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jeremy Sherman as tribute to Django Reinhardt and the Hot Club of France. This podcast is part of Vital and Thriving Congregations, a joint initiative between Newbigin House of Studies and the Episcopal Church in the Bay Area, the Diocese of California. Visit vitalthriving.org for more information. Thank you.